Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. But to break it down to be described, it would be, I'm watching the guy ahead of me, I'm watching the ones before that, I'm seeing the basic topics that have been covered, and then I have to adjust everything and rearrange it so it looks like I have my version of all that and I didn't steal it. And then on top of that, you have to improvise a little bit of talking to the people in advance after they've been spoken to the entire evening because you're the headliner. And you have to find a new way to talk to them and don't ask the same questions again. And uh, rather than say, I'll never kill this, I've had middle guys destroy to the point where like, oh God, what am I gonna do after the middle guy? Just stay in the moment, just stay in the moment, just stay in the moment. Just stay in that moment. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Glad to have you here. So, so special to have this person with me today, Rick Overton, a guy who has done everything and crossed over all areas of the business and has worked with some of the greatest in the history of the game. I love this guy, and so will you. Before we get started, I just wanted to thank all of you so much for all your support. It never stops. You guys are incredible, and I love doing this because there's something about the information that these people that come on the show bring that feels so unique and special and authentic and helpful to anybody. Without further ado, let me introduce my guest and then enjoy. Rick Overton is an actor, writer, comedian, podcast host, and impressionist. He's a 40-year veteran of stand-up comedy and acting and has worked alongside industry legends such as Jerry Seinfeld, Larry David, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Patrick Stewart, Eddie Murphy, Jack Black, Nick Kroll, and Matt Damon. He is a WGA-nominated and Emmy-winning writer for the show Dennis Miller Live, always one of my favorites. And he started performing stand-up in high school in a comedy duo called Overton and Sullivan, and then went on to go solo. 
at the New York Improvisation, the original, at 44th and 9th. In 1978, he made his first ever on-screen appearance on Saturday Night Live. And by the early 80s, he started landing small roles in movies and television, which has led to a career of working with some of the biggest directors in Hollywood, including Ron Howard, Harold Ramis, Jay Roach, Chris Columbus, and Steven Soderbergh. In the mid-90s, he joined the writing staff for Dennis Miller Live, and from 95 to 97, he wrote on 42 of the episodes to massive critical acclaim. He's guest starred in numerous television programs, but some of his iconic roles include The Drake in Seinfeld, Pam's Dad in The Office, and most recently, Mitch on Showtime's I'm Dying Up Here. He's also appeared on Curb Your Enthusiasm, Lost, The League, Kroll Show, Veep, Overton's completely improvisational comedy special, Set List, was released in June of this year and can be found on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, Peacock, Comcast, YouTube, and the Vimeo. For those of you who don't know, Set List is a live comedy show that's been staged around the world and aired as a TV series. On Set List, it's this incredible thing that happens where comedians are fed never-before-seen topics and then incorporate them into an entirely improvised stand-up routine. But in Rick's case for the special, an entire hour. Incredible. His next project is an eclectic one, a documentary that you can see him in soon, entitled Prop Master, Inside the World of Hollywood Props. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. What an honor. Rick Overton. Thank you, brother. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. And uh, really, you've been a great inspiration. You've launched a lot of brilliant people, and you are a, a brilliant guide. You're like a Jedi of advice <laughs> out there. And uh, what you're doing now is you're really distributing good, sound advice, and you're, you're staying up with the time about you're not giving good 19... 95 advice you're giving good right now advice 2021 it's a different game now and you're giving up-to-date revision uh update information out for what has to be adjusted to so how many decades has it been now you're doing this i started doing stand-up comedy in 1979 and this feels like an episode of overview with rick overton yeah oh my gosh you're going back about i did a podcast with barry and i asked the questions i'm sorry man no i love because i love talking with you i just started no, doing it's it perfect. it's because i want to know no yeah i started doing stand-up comedy in longmeadow at the high school and then i did it at an open mic night in boston and then I started running comedy clubs and things went a little crazy and got very lucky along the way, uh, meeting a lot of uh, extraordinary artists. And thank God they believed in me as much as I believed in them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the, uh, keeping pace with an online presence, you're doing so well. So one of the things that you may or may not know about me is that a person who became a mainstay in San Francisco where you spent a lot of time. And mm -hmm. even if you tell me you didn't, you did. I'm doing an open mic night. I'm not going to go through the whole story, but 
I'm doing really well with the open mic nights in Boston. It's like 1980. And I'm about to go on. I did the ding. I did the ding ho, but this is where this happened at the comedy connection. Connection. Okay. And I'm about to go on and I get a tap on my shoulder and I look both ways and back. I don't see anything. I'm focused to go on. Another tap on my back. And I look around, I look down, there's this kid, he's wearing a hunter's outfit. He's got the Elmer Fudd hunter's hat with the red and black plaid. He's got the hunter's jacket. He's got that black Elmer Fudd belt and the boots, and he's got the hunter's pants. And he reaches out and he's like, hey man, I just, uh, just want to let you know, have a good set. I'm going on after you. I'm like, oh. Okay, well, uh, good luck, man. I'm Barry. What's your name? My name's Bobcat. <laughs> and I go, did fun. <laughs> and I go on, and I have one of the best sets of my life, and I feel so horrible because I'm going to the bar and I'm telling him I have a good set. And I'm thinking to myself, this guy has no chance. The following the set. <laughs> this guy has no chance following me. Except. And he goes on, and he gets a standing ovation <laughs> and then he finally gets off stage and this last line is i lost my girlfriend i mean i didn't really lose my girlfriend it's just when i go there there's this, this new, new guy, guy. yeah it. yeah <laughs> and then he pauses and he says i'm looking for roommates i really am and, then he just goes off and i was an ra at miles standish hall at boston university and ah. i thought you know is this true i said you really yeah he said i came down from skinny Atlas, new york which is near Syracuse, and I don't have a place to stay. I said, well, there's a broom closet in my floor at Boston University. I can put a bed in there, and you can hang out in there. What? He stayed there for four months. Wow, an 80. And one of my favorite things that happened was that I said, how are you making money? And he said, well, the Comedy Connection is having me pass out passes, and they're giving me money for passing out passes. I'm like, oh, that's cool. At the end of the year, when we all had to move out, I went to open the door of the broom closet, and it was like something out of a movie where, like, 200,000 cards just fell on top oh, of me. Fibber like, McGee and Molly, the radio show. Yeah. Don't open the closet, the bowl skis and the bowling balls. and Yeah, yeah right. all these discount cards. Oh, discount cards. And I know Bob eventually removed to San Francisco, and there was a great, great, and I want you to share this with the audience because a lot of people don't talk about it, but there was a radio DJ that changed the course of comedy in San Francisco, uh, Alex Alex Bennett. Bennett. Yes. He's still at it. And Bobcat Goldthwait started doing that show, and he became a huge, huge star there. Yeah. And I think you were there at that time, around Slightly that time. Slightly after. Just moments after. Yeah. I came in around 82. So, but Bob's still there. He's still going strong. It's a year after he got there or something like that. And, you know, you're around. There's a lot of stars there that you know are going to be stars, but here's this guy doing this character that's true to his life. What was it like seeing somebody come in and just, he was an outsider. He wasn't a homegrown product like most people there. And the comedy scene was very tight and very strong. And something that we never talk about is how did the scene embrace him knowing that he wasn't a homegrown product? From what I could tell, by the time I had laid eyes upon him, he was doing pretty good. And he brought with him 
A really interesting combination. Bobcat has, he's not really doing that guy so much these days. But when he's starting, that character was an interesting combination of fragile and frail, vulnerable to the nth degree, but he's also from Boston and he will fuck you up. That entire time he lets you know, click, there's still a switchblade in one hand the entire time. And I've never I've never seen anyone play it because Andy would do them separately in a different way. Andy Kaufman. Andy Kaufman. I was the I was uh, when I was breaking up with my comedy team, I I uh, was looking for things to do to perform and I couldn't always get on. But at one time Andy was breaking in a new character. Tony Clifton. And he wasn't in makeup yet, and he didn't have the outfit yet. He would just wear a T-shirt and kind of do his hair and be mean. And everyone had to call him Tony when he showed up at the improv. And he pulled me aside and says, I'm going to need you to sit through the whole show until I'm up. And you have to be an audience member. And I'm going to pull you up. And you're just some guy going, yeah, what? And you go, I'm going to say what's funny is. You want to see what's funny? Sploosh with the pitcher of water. Remember the pitcher of water bit he would do? I'm the first prototype pitcher of water guy. Wow. And then, boo, you suck. I'm, I'm going to complain to the manager. I go out the side door in the New York Improv, you know, the side door in the 44th. Of course, 44th and nine. Yeah, and I go back and I sit in back and I'm watching. And I watch him. Uh, to make you laugh. And he starts playing the bongos and he wins them back from absolute sheer utter hatred to loving him again. And Bobcat has a similar thing. That's the point I'm trying to make is he can throw you all over the room and then pull you back again in with that vulnerability. And so when you're starting as a comic and this is one of the most challenging things for comics today. And in every decade, there's always something that you're looking at and you're like, how the fuck am I ever going to be that funny in every decade? So you're there, you're seeing people do things to rooms that are not even, there was a guy there and a lot of your audience doesn't know, but there was a guy, Michael Pritchard. That guy destroyed rooms. Mm -hmm. And even though he wasn't a household name, he you were thinking, okay, this guy, it's going to happen. But it, he wasn't the only one. There were some just really spectacular Voice of Java. People. Of course. So you're coming on. Is it demoralizing? Do you look around and say, I'm never going to be this funny? Or are you thinking to yourself, I'm going to be as funny as these people? I'm going to have... A long career. In those moments, I think more like an improver. I think like an improviser. All right. I'm watching what's been covered so far. I see basically what everyone's laughing at. I know kind of what I do. I know, oh, that topic is covered. Got to edit that out. How do I segue these two things without that? And all this is going at maybe five times that speed while you're watching all this, you know. But to break it down to be described, it would be, I'm watching the guy ahead of me. I'm watching the ones before that. I'm seeing the basic topics that have been covered. And then I have to adjust everything and rearrange it. So it looks like I have my version of all that and I didn't steal it. And then on top of that, you have to improvise a little bit of talking to the people in advance after they've been spoken to the entire evening because you're the headliner. And you have to find a new way to talk to them and don't ask the same questions again. And uh, rather than say, I'll never kill this. I've had middle guys destroy to the point where like, oh God, what am I going to do after the middle guy? Just stay in the moment, just stay in the moment, just stay in the moment. Just stay in that moment. Because if you stay in that moment, 
just like the other version of of a judgment of what you're doing against that compared against everything else, even in just that evening rather than, or just the careers in general, looking at these massive careers. I try, I try to just stay in where the needle's hitting the record, where the laser's hitting the disc. And uh, that's like where improv is, you know? Just stay alert to these moments. And I, it doesn't always kill. It's not always going to be bigger or better than them. No matter what I do, certain things just won't happen. I can only go to the maximum of what I think I'm capable of achieving. And I find the safest place for me there even is improv. It's, it's, it's the audience senses something. They see a different thing in my performance, in my eyes, in my voice. And it's like, oh, it's like the first time. Because it really is the first time. That's what I love about Setlist. It's, it's also the first time I'm hearing all this stuff out of my mouth. But I will say this, you know, when I first started watching you, and I feel like I'm uniquely qualified to talk about you this. You did. You were there, man. Okay. So you didn't come on the scene and were an improver. Yes, at you first. You had a set that you had, you were working on, and you had a structure where it started. Mm -hmm. There was a middle and an end. I'm not saying that there weren't times where you didn't flex your muscles, <laughs> but in those first five years, I felt like you were writing an act mm -hmm. and you were putting together an act, a headline. You weren't putting together an improvisational headline act. Not completely, no. And so... I think there is something to be said to the audience to tell them like, yeah, you have all these guys doing all these things, but you're trying to make your mark. And the only way you know how to make your mark is to do your content. Your content isn't as flexible when you don't improv as much. Yeah. So you have to go on in all different situations and follow all sorts of energies. And so before you were improving as much, how did you break through and make your mark being just the guy working on the great set with the great material? I guess in my head, I'm looking at the way I was writing it, writing the material to get out of the terror of not having my partner to one side. Oh, where's Roger? Oh, shit. Oh, God, I'm on my own. So there was a, especially initially when I broke away from Roger, I, I had some material I was, was holding on to it and, uh, and I was trying to refine it and, and, and get it to, to be something I could work a headline spot with. But even after a headline spot started to get to me after a point on the road, you didn't see me as much on the road and I was playing my ass off on the road. And I think that's what defined me bringing all that new material home was those improvs. I did, all the rating came out of the road. Now, you talk about Roger, Roger Sullivan. Sullivan. Yeah. What was the impetus for the breakup? When you're artists, when you've gone to do a free spot somewhere, you were brilliant. No, you were more brilliant. Miles and miles of driving down the road complimenting each other. The second they hand you a check that pays for one increment of time, whether it's one person or two. It's the same amount of money. You don't get paid more because there's two of you. That's when it all starts to break down to whose premise was more important than whose punchline and whose gasoline and whose car. And it's the, the money thing that destroys every marriage. Do we have to bring up my marriage? 
so, it was an improv. <laughs> um, so, so you break up, but I don't remember him continuing. He did in New York. I don't remember how long he was did showing he up. He was doing Rodney's for a while, you know, and he was uh, he was working some of the other places. And then he was working on Jersey for a while. But he stopped. He got a day job. He got a day job. He worked in computers. What happened in your career that made you realize that you weren't feeling the heat like God? Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. I'm Roger anymore. Well, I was all kind of flurried into people giving me a spot on my own. They thought I had a separate thing I could do. And Roger... Roger's ethic was to really hone and refine and perfect every bit. So it's just a piece of Swiss machinery and can be done over and over identically, beautifully, perfectly. But I was starting to, uh, but I was studying with Martin Harvey Friedberg, you know, Marty Friedberg and yeah. JJ Barry, the Jew Zen boogie guys. Jews, of course. And they were my improv teachers and they were from really old school, second city, really about character, really take your time, really explore. And so I was taking a lot of that training into that. They were a big influence on me were improv in the beginning. So when did you do your first set in your career where you went on stage and from the moment you went on stage to the moment that you left the stage, you didn't do any planned material. I would say somewhere in the early mid eighties on the road. And why did you do that? Knowing you were getting paid for the gig, the people came to the show to see a performance. They were the drunk. They were a chaos theory. No chaos fact. No longer theory. It was chaos fact. And they uh, came to sort of uh, mix it up a little bit. And so I found myself in a combative situation that I had to keep winning over and winning over and winning over. And I was pretty successful at it. And it was a test of fire that I tried a few times when they weren't combative. And at first it wasn't as good as strong. But I found that there's a balancing point. Though you can start to stay with the material, but the segues can be fun and you can break things up and interact with the audience a little more and then find a way to include that into how you introduce the next piece or something like that. And it's like adding crowd work in between each thing. And like 
myself, I feel like I have a kindred spirit with you because I've seen a lot in this business and I've seen a lot of people. I've seen a lot of people come. I've seen a lot of people go. I've seen a lot of people stay. I've seen a lot of people break through to have incredible careers. And I've seen a lot of people complicate winning. And we've seen a lot of the same people. If you had to identify, when you see a young person, when you see a young comedy artist in the club that you've never seen before and no one told you about them and you just catch them and you see them, is there some identifiable factors that you look at and they hit you like a ton of bricks, like, holy shit, I know that look. I know that sound, I know that timing, I know that movement. This person is going to be huge. I saw that with Jim Carrey. I helped get him started. With Cobbs, I told Tom to give him a few weeks to develop and uh, help launch everybody at once. And he's, they have all very generously acknowledged so. Tom Sawyer Tom was Sawyer. the uh, owner of, of Cobbs. Cobbs Comedy Club in yeah. San Francisco, a legendary place. And he helped get... Uh, Jim going there would let him, and it was letting Jim do that free form thing and just play around. He said, he, I just told him he's finding a new thing. He's getting out of just doing impressions. Now he's about to have a huge breakthrough. You ought to be a piece of it. And so he did. Uh, Louis Anderson used to tell me these crazy stories about how Mitzi had him, you know, in the beginning, clean out with these big closet storage room to make into a comedy club, which turned out to be the belly room, the third room at the comedy club. But one of the things she used to, he used to tell me, which I loved, was she, for some reason, would always love to put him last. And and after Jim Carrey, and then they'd give out the checks, and Louie would have to do that last spot. Oh, man. And she'd say that Jim would always get the standing ovation. And his way to get the room to where he wanted them, what he would walk up to the mic after Jim and say, let's have another hand for Jim Carrey. And people would applaud. And then after they applauded, he'd go back to the mic. And before he said anything, he'd be like, let's have another hand for Jim Carrey. <laughs> and he'd do it like three or four times to where people just hated Jim Carrey. And, and then he got them to where he wanted them. To do Dirty trick. <laughs> um, tell me some young comedians that people can look out for that you see in your travels that you say to yourself, this person has those same qualities of the people that I saw who were superstars 40 years ago. Oh, gosh, I, I am, you know, that's a big leap. But I would say that I think uh, a great writing mind is Zach Kahn, K-A-H-N. He's, he's writing some stuff out there on Twitter that's just destroying me, man. Right. Smart mind. God, someone get this cat on a staff somewhere, all right? Go put him on staff. He's gonna, he'll do some punch-up for you guys. I love that guy. And so... Uh, and who do you see on stage that moves you? That I'm just talking about people who it's are doing. It's been a while since I've been on stage. I've been a Zoom bee, man. I've no, been doing okay. Zoom. It's okay, but I mean, when before <laughs> before you left, were there people when you'd walk into the clubs that you're like, "Hey, keep doing it. You're doing the right thing." I think Erica Rhodes is smashing it on all levels at once, and she did a. I went to the taping of her special at the Rose Bowl. And this is the most endemic 21st century comedy special thing I've ever seen in my life. It was like very surreal. It would be like a science fiction parody of the future. 
but she handled it gracefully and beautifully. And it's one of the most unique specials I've ever seen because it's shot with all cars at a drive-in with a giant jumbo behind her. And she's doing her act, a smart act, and great, just demure, dry, sweet delivery with this, you know, psychologically interesting stuff. And uh, instead of laughing, it's honk, 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 and applause is flick, 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 flick with the high beams. And she rolled with that perfectly. I thought that was a magnificent thing. Awesome. Speaking of something magnificent, and I didn't want to get into this this early, but you talk about comedy specials, and I I saw the set list special oh, right. that you did. And right. um, for the audience who doesn't know this concept, uh, who might be under a rock, <laughs> the concept is very simple and all great concepts you can probably say in a half a sentence. I probably won't be able to do that, but... The whole premise of the concept is simply Rick and other people, but for a special, it's just him, has no idea what the concepts or premises are going to be. He'll start and somebody will write something on a board or it'll come up on a computer behind him. He'll look behind him and he'll <laughs> see a pygmy wolf. Then he'll just start doing a comedy routine on whatever a pygmy wolf is and how he got the name pygmy wolf. And then when he feels like he's finishing, for some reason, the people producing it with him, I guess they have the feeling of when he's <laughs> when he's wearing down or when he's kind of... I throw to the screen. I go... Like that, and I turn and look like that, and they go, that when you see it back on my head, see all that big old bald head... Switch it up. Got it. Okay. So I felt like they were on the Partly same too. page as you. Yes. they. But, but I, 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 I always work it out with them. When you see me throw the shoulder, that's me telling you, switch it up. When you're doing a show like that, are there certain times like when somebody gives you something and it's like somebody says rhyme with orange? Yeah. Out of every hundred times somebody <laughs> puts something on the board, <laughs> how many of the hundred are you just like... I fucking ate it there. There's, yeah. no, there's no way I can make that funny. There's a couple of times in the special where I just digged, I, I, and I'll set it up so strongly in the beginning, too. I'll say, you know, because of the way America's going now, there's only one thing we can do, and it's about your diet. And and it's important to know what to eat. And I eat, and it has nothing to do with fucking food. When I turn around, oh, you did it again, you knucklehead. You threw yourself in the pit. And so everyone loves watching me <laughs> crawl out of the filthy, like a scene from uh, Raising Arizona. But this is what's so fascinating to me about the special to me. And I, I just want to share this with you. So you're in control. <laughs> okay you're in control of how much time you do mm -hmm. whatever you do mm -hmm. if you want to do just an hour you yeah. can do an hour if you want to do an hour and a half you do an hour and a half you want to do two you do two you can cut the show down any way you want mm -hmm. but what fascinated me is you chose to keep in certain moments where it felt like I got hung <laughs> I'm, I'm dying here and you wanted the audience to see that, and you could have cut that out. Why did you want the audience to see that? What's so important about that for you as an artist? Thrills, chills. But you got those thrills and chills when you did it, but now you're giving it to the world. Did you want the world to know that this is a flawed kind of uh, 
art form. I'm an imperfectionist. <laughs> it's the goal you can reach every day. <laughs> I love, you know, I can't believe I've been in this life as long as I have. And I've never heard anybody say to me, I'm an imperfectionist. <laughs> Fantastic. And I think it's good for every young artist to remember that. It's what's interesting is the asymmetry of it. That's the surprise. Once it becomes a symmetrical pattern, they can start to jump ahead and call what you're probably going to do with the bit. And some comics do brilliant acts, but they can't do a three hour, can't do an hour and a half version of it, all staying in that format because everyone will start to figure it out and leap ahead. Do people who bridge both worlds, like I look at you as a bridge guy. Because I know if I told you, hey, listen, I have an hour show in wherever, Vegas, for you, and there's no improv on the stage. The owner wants you to do an act from start to finish. Mm -hmm. You're going to be able to do it. And then if I tell you, okay, now in Bakersfield, they have a show. They want all improv from start to finish. You're going to be able to do it. Now, whether you will admit this about yourself or not, you can count on half a hand these stand-up comedians that can do that. Mm. Now, I, I would I would put Craig Robinson as someone oh, who can do it. And he's a renaissance cat. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. The area just just pure music without the funny, just the music alone. He's just also a brilliant musician. He's just capable of everything. I know he can do it, but I don't even think I can name five people that could do an hour of straight stand-up and an hour of improv completely without any prompting. They could just do the shit. Do you know? Greg Travis. Okay, yes. Who Maybe else? Uh, Greg Proops. Greg Proops, of course. We we know that part. That's four. All right. And uh... it's hard to find, right? <laughs> and so this is what's so rare about you. And so do you find that, do you find that the, I know this is an odd question, but do you find that the improv world, just the improv world, kind of doesn't embrace you as much as their people who that's all they do is improv? And do you find the stand-up world 
might not embrace you as much because you go in the other world? Yeah. Well, I didn't come up through Second City, through the Chicago Second City, and I didn't come up through UCB, and I didn't come up through Groundlings. I sort of got a, a reputation of this guy can run with Robin, and he'll figure he'll figure out the rules of your game if you let him play. And so I do a lot of that until I just started guesting in with a more regular pattern with that. But I was always an outsider on all the on all the fronts. I've been uh, a TikToker. Back and forth, back and forth. You talk about uh, Robin, and we'll talk a lot about Robin Williams. But but Robin had a chance to have many people in his circle. And he chose a very, very small group in the circle. Mm -hmm. Bobcat Goldthwait was mm -hmm. one of them. That's why I wanted to start off with him. Absolutely. And you, and Steve you, Pearl, Steve me. Pearl uh, from San Francisco, mm -hmm. and yourself. Yeah. But very, very few people. I'm talking about like in the inner sanctum. Fleischer. Charles Fleischer. That's right. The voice of Roger Rabbit. Roger Rabbit. A great improver too. Mm -hmm. uh, no one has eyebrows like Charles Fleischer. No. But the point being is, how do you find yourself as a young comic and you're watching from afar this person who literally, when they go on stage, the whole comedy club could fall down and you wouldn't be able to hear that happening when he's on stage. And this guy wants you, feels safe with you like what was the first thing that happened with him that made him feel safe with you other than other comics who he would never let in elaine gave me a lovely elaine boozler gave me a lovely intro at catch in the late 70s mid 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 late 70s he was just coming off of the uh richard Pryor show and you know jumping into laughing and uh we had a mutual love of Jonathan Winters and Peter Sellers to the degree where it sort of bonded us. And then he saw me play a little bit and he could sort of see that, yeah, I got a little bit of that spirit too. Then when I would get up on stage and play with Robin, at first it was not how you neck and neck with Robin. It's just how you keep pace. And don't try to outdo anything. It's yes anding. It was the best training to go yes and with everything, to heighten and explore till he could find something I was exploring and jump on that and play with it again. Just stay with me here for a second. I have to go with this first, and then I'm going to go back. Explain to our audience something really important, those two words, yes and. The premise being in an improv. In improv, I, I come in here, and you are planning to be the astronaut who's going to launch the rocket into space. And I go, Sheriff, the Dalton gang's coming. Okay, fuck the shit. Fuck the astronaut part. I'm the sheriff now. In that split second, yes, all right. Well, we're going to get a posse together, and I'm, I don't know where everybody is. It looks like it's right. Where are the posse? Yes, and heighten and explore, and the other person has to just jump along with it. And, so that's something really important that you said that I wanted you to share, the heighten and explore. Could you go on that bandwagon for a second of how that works when you're yes on ending. stage? Yeah, and you're yes-anding. And so heighten and explore is to 
respect what's been brought so far and explore that rather than, and now I'll put a dinosaur in the scene. You can, but that isn't how you save the scene. Take what your partner gave you, make it better, and also keep feeding them back something that would make them go, ooh, thanks, and then bounce it back to you. You're doing the top form of the game when you're doing it like that. All right, so take our audience back to the first time that you're hanging out in the club, you're there, and your first time that Robin either brings you on stage or tells you, hey, listen, uh, when I do this, I want you to come up and start fucking with me. He'd come up after me. I wouldn't go up and play with him. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> They'll eat me alive. But they will go, wow, when they see him join me. And so only on the rarest occasion would I join him because it just doesn't work the same well, way. The I, I had to prove could... me first with a whole set. I had to let them know in advance one whole stretch of time of just that the guys get that I can I can make you laugh too. And then, oh, well, look who's here. But it, it sort of it only really succeeded in that order. Well, I thought from what I remember, and I guess I'm remembering incorrectly, where it does work when he's on stage is when you are just pretending you're <gasps> oh, not yeah. a com you know, in other yeah, words. Yeah, yeah, audience guy. Yeah. Oh, when I was audience guy, yeah, yeah. I, I, mean, I saw, would ask I, him questions, heckle yeah, him from I the saw, audience. I, yeah, saw yeah, yeah. You, I saw you guys oh, okay. kill that's like different. that. That's different. Yeah. Why is that different? I'm not up on stage with him playing the whole time. So, yes, we were coming. I, he said, at some point, throw the, throw the chicken, uh, asking advice of a sex advice or something like that. Uh, uh, and he had, he had some bit. And I, I was a redneck and we were going back and forth. If, uh, if I have sex with a chicken and it lives, is that is that sad for me? Or something like that, you know. And... Uh, I don't remember what the, the bit was exactly, but it was something along those kind of red, <laughs> creepy redneck doing something horrible lines like that. Okay, so the first time <laughs> you work with him, he comes on stage with you, but he has to, I presume, unless he just had the utmost respect for you and knew you could just go... I presume that he said before you went on, listen, uh, uh -huh. you know, can I come on with you? Oh, yeah. And then you'd say, this is when you should come on, or he just came on. Oh, no, I would just, you know, he would respectfully always let me get a set in. He knew I had to sort of mark some territory. So how first. much time before he would come up? 15. Got it. So the first time he does it, where are you? What happens? Uh, uh, improv on 44th. And uh, Really? Yeah, I think it was. And then we do catch and stuff. So it was back and forth with that. But I think it was the first time it was a... I think it was that improv, yeah. Came up and uh, at the end of a set when we were, you know, I had a, a punk band at the time with uh, briefly Lance and the Boils and uh, <laughs> some of the folks at uh, the improv would join, you know. And um, so, and then after that, it sort of established that we could go crazy and start improvising. And people were kind of breaking all the rules of just being set after that. And so he'd come up and join after a set with that. And we'd loosely play around and goof around. And at first, he would just completely take over. And that's the way it went. And I would just sort of keep pace the best I could. And um, just slowly, over time, he let me come neck to neck and play. And even jump ahead to throw ideas. 
but we would play equally from that place. But it took a long time to catch up to that race car. A lot of shows. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.